Today on Security Science, we're kicking off our multi-part dive into the Prioritization to Prediction Research Series. Thank you for joining Security Science. I'm Dan Mellinger, and today I have the prince of risk-based vulnerability management and Kenneth Security co-founder and CTO, Ed Pellis. Thanks for joining, Ed. Uh, thanks for having me again, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. Um, we also have a special guest today to discuss the topic of our research series. So we have the Verizon DBIR creator, RSA Conference and Fair Institute advisory board member, Virginia Tech professor, partner and co-founder of the Scientia Institute and fellow Star Wars nerd, Dr. Wade Baker. Hey, Wade. Hey, hey. the last one I think is most important. The Star Wars piece. <laughs> um, and just for the record, uh, Wade does have what a Millennium Falcon, a TIE fighter, BB-8, uh, a Rebel Blockade runner. Two oh, fighters. two TIE fighters. An X, I see an X-wing and what looks like the men, Millennium Falcon. Snow speeder down here, kind of off oh, screen. Oh man, I am very jealous at that collection. Well, thanks for joining us, guys. Um, just real quick, I know that we're kicking off this. Uh, kind of history and overview of prioritization prediction volume one, but I thought we'd get started with a little bit of background on how you guys know each other, how the relationship started between Scientia and Kenna. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that Ed swiped right on uh, Wade's profile and that's how you guys met. I think it was a, a dating app called DDSec or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Security science dating app. I'm not nice. even sure if I remember. I mean, that sounds bad, but... <laughs> We, I mean, we've met several times, uh, Wade and I, over the years, I think, in various events. I know, I think we even spoke together on some panels, maybe the Securosis thing way back when. But yeah, I'm not sure the first time I swiped right, I'm not sure I recall. <laughs> it, all, it all blends in together. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I can't remember when we first started talking about this. Obviously, this has been within the last few years because Scientia, we started in 2016, 2017, really actually doing anything. So it's within that time frame. And I think you probably spoke to Jay first. Maybe, maybe you guys started working a little bit and that spawned all the awesome research that we've done since then together so yep, uh, yep. i do remember uh, both myself and michael reitman having a couple of conversations with jay jacobs very early on I so think you probably we, swiped right with jay first and then i think michael I probably swiped with jay <laughs> <laughs> oh god this is going to keep going yeah, it's long get past this podcast worse. isn't this and real quick, Wade, uh, can you give us a little overview on Scientia Institute, what you guys do, and uh, how you guys do it a little bit? Yeah, we we are a security data science and research firm. Um, and we, I mean, our, our short story is we, we really enjoy doing data analysis and telling data-driven stories. And a lot of that goes back to, you mentioned in the intro there that uh, I was involved uh, with the data breach investigations report at Verizon. And in the context of that, you know, if you if you open that report and look at all the vendors that contribute to that thing, there's a huge number. And uh, Jay, uh, my partner at Scientia, was um, was with me there at Verizon. And we just really, really enjoyed the process of learning uh, from vendor supplied information, trying to figure out what it 
informed about uh, uh, cyber risk management. And, uh, you know, we always thought, well, OK, if we did this outside of Verizon, what would it look like? Uh, that's that's how Scientia was born. I, I understand you are the godfather of the DBIR. <laughs> in, in the same way that you're the prince of risk-based vulnerability management, I, th- I think those two titles are similar there. Perfect. <laughs> very, very true. Well, if anyone uh, is listening, you should definitely check out the Scientia Institute's uh, research library. It's a really, really cool research um, resource that has a bunch of stuff. You guys have been cataloging all this research for what? couple yeah, years now at least right it, it has been a couple years and it's admittedly a side project so it hasn't gotten the you know focused love and attention like the prioritization to prediction series has uh, has gotten but yeah there's i think we're getting near 2500 reports and the the unique thing about that is it's these are all reports created on the industry side we're not doing academic literature or anything like that these are not marketing documents anything in there uh at least we try to have a criteria of you know, it's got to be some kind of study has statistics findings charts etc in there and uh kind of you know when you look at the numbers you realize that there's a lot of good research being put out in the in the industry Absolutely. Cool. Well, that'll bring us to prioritization of predictions. So that's a a joint report that's done on behalf of uh, Kenneth Security in partnership with Scientia. And what we're on volume five now, spanning two and a half years uh, of research. So we're going to be digging into volume one. And Ed, I think uh, the biggest thing that struck me when we were working on volume one was there wasn't a lot of this data available. Like there wasn't a ton of this research um, that had been done prior. So um, Ed, would you mind uh, just giving us an overview of, uh, you know, what some of the goals were uh, when we first started this one? Sure, sure. Uh, And I do recall having some conversations about Wade about this. And he's like, really? Are you sure? Hasn't this already been done? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, we were basically looking at and, and we started to see this early on, even within Kenna prior to doing some of the research was, you know, there's an overwhelmingly number of CVEs or common vulnerabilities and exposures uh, within the National Vulnerability Database. Every year, there there tends to be more and more. And then we see, obviously, on the Kenneth side, thousands, if not millions of instances of these CVEs across many, many assets. And it just, it became very apparent that of all of the vulnerabilities that are out there, that it seemed very few were worthy of a lot of attention. And and by that, I mean, I got to jump on something. I need to remediate this right away. It's likely to end in some sort of exploitation event if I don't. So we wanted to kind of dig into this and figure out, well, what does uh, end in exploitation events? Could we predict or model out the characteristics of a vulnerability were that could ultimately lead to one of those exploitation events. And then, you know, we see a lot of different remediation strategies across the industry on how people are actually going about fixing or or determining what vulnerabilities to fix because it was very apparent that nobody was able to fix all of them. And we wanted to see how how that related, right? And is it are they doing the right things? Um, how did they compare and contrast to each other? Were some better than others? If so, what made them good or bad? Uh, and that's kind of the 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 juxt of when we really started to get started on on this series, and and really the some of the questions that we, we set out to answer in volume one. 
Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it was, I guess, the first step down that rabbit hole as well, now that we're, what, five volumes deep. So I guess <laughs> let's start with the data, right? You brought it up. So end of 2017, I believe, is when V1, the the data stopped collecting from CVE. So I have some notes here. It looks like there's over 120,000 total common vulnerabilities and exposures. So the CVE list that existed at that time. Now, in the end of 2019, there was over 136,000. So that shows how much it's grown in the intervening uh, years. But one of the quotes I found in the report that was really cool, and I just wanted to read this out because it is pretty interesting. I believe Wade penned this one, but the CVE list is neither comprehensive nor perfect. Many vulnerabilities are unknown, undisclosed, or otherwise never assigned a CVE ID. Furthermore, CVE details are subject to biases, errors, errors, and omissions. And so um, I thought that was interesting because there's a whole section that goes on data sources and some of the enrichment data that goes into it. So Wade, do you mind uh, taking a stab at some of the additional information that help kind of classify um, the, the data for us? Yeah. And, you know, partly that statement was just trying to be transparent about what we were doing uh, because, you know, I love the security industry, but it tends to be kind of a skeptical lot and uh, which is say. a good thing, right? <laughs> I mean, that comes kind of comes with the territory, I think, uh, given the mindset that many have. And so, you know, we, we do base a lot of the analysis around CVE and the objection that someone says is, oh, well, there's a lot of other vulnerabilities that aren't on the CVE list. And that's that's true. But, you know, the fact of the matter is when you talk about the the lion's share of vulnerability management, I, I think we've measured it since then. It's something like between 95 and 99 percent or something of of the scanned vulnerabilities that are detected by any scanner that kind of supports, you know, has a CVE. So again, that's, it's most of them, but not all of them. And, uh, but there's a lot of things around the CVE process and tooling and all of that, that, that really goes in that enrichment category. You have, of course, the National Vulnerability Database. I mean, I, I wish other areas of security would document and collect information like CVE slash NVD has over the last 20 years. I mean, that, that has been one of the longest running data collection and sharing projects in our industry. And it shows, you know, there's a lot of people that contribute to it and nope, it's not perfect, not completely comprehensive, like we said, but you can do a lot of really, really good stuff with it. And it's a great resource for, for people, you know, that are, that are managing vulnerabilities. Uh, and you have other, other kinds of things surrounding that, you know, there, there's the scoring system, CVSS that, that has been in place for some time. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later. It also not perfect. We find a lot of, of uh, issues with with what that's trying to accomplish and how it goes about it. But, you know, it's it's still there and it's a resource. CPE is great for the equipment um, that's associated with, with these vulnerabilities. It allows us to do things like, hey, do Microsoft products have more vulnerabilities than, you know, other operating systems um, or, or types of, which is what we dug into a lot in volume five. Then Metasploit and Exploit DB, you know, you've got not just the vulnerabilities themselves, but the signals that we use to know uh, or which of the vulnerabilities have been exploited, right? Because that's that's the thing that we we really focus on in in these reports are all right, there's that subset of vulnerabilities that we know have been weaponized 
or are being actively used in the wild to to compromise organizations clearly we want to prioritize on those so how do we how do we know that you know most most organizations don't just have that walking knowledge right we can all quote oh yeah not not pet yeah exploited blue keep and and there's certain ones that raise to that level but the majority of them you wouldn't know if it weren't for these other other types of efforts tracking that kind of information and sharing it that's actually a really good lead in as well. So in the first report, we did this Vuln life cycle, right? So Vuln's created, it's discovered, right? People find out about it. It's disclosed, which means typically it's published in the CVE database. There's exploit code developed, which we see can happen before or after that published date. There's actual exploitation, which is can be hard to track down of when something it's actually exploited and we can actually see that in the wild. And then the detection signature is typically how we figure out it's been exploited in the wild. So could you go over a couple of the challenges to collecting this kind of vulnerability data? You kind of, I know there's a lot um, and you already talked about kind of being transparent with, you know, it's, it's hard to get all these definitions. We, you know, have to work with the data that we have. What are some of those challenges? Yeah. I, you know, and I think this is, Really interesting from a already mentioned that we really enjoy analyzing data and telling stories and and that kind of thing. That's what we do at Scientia. But I, I find this one particularly interesting because the data that we're using comes from so many different places. And and if you just kind of walk through that chain, right? You've got a vulnerability is discovered. That's some security researcher or you know whatever finding a vulnerability it's a person and they report this right so so then it goes into cve that's one data set exploit code comes from somewhere totally different someone sees that and then they they create an exploit that they whether they put that code on github or wherever it lives it's hey here's a working exploit um sometimes those are quote white hats sometimes those are the other side of the fence that are using it for malicious purposes but that code exists in lots of different places and and we need to figure out where it is so that we can know that vulnerability has been exploited and then you know it's a completely different tool set to know that that exploit has been used in the wild because now you're talking about organizations or entities that have sensors on the internet um, you know, IDS, IPS, and can see that, hey, this is being used. And a lot of that tends to be, say, the, the network providers and, and, and those types of organizations or individual uh, uh, companies as well. And then the rolling out of a detection signature, you, you would not know that an exploit has been used if the detection signatures to recognize it weren't created and deployed by all the tool vendors out there. So when you kind of look at that as a chain of what all has to happen so that we can answer a simple question of, is this exploit being used in the wild? It's pretty amazing. There's a lot that goes on into that. I've never heard it quite laid out with that much complexity that I could understand. So <laughs> when you put it like that, yes, that is an extraordinary chain of events and data that needs to be correlated for every one piece of information you want to find, right? Right. What that results in ultimately or hopefully is um, this kind of case for prioritization. So I think this is a, a good spot where we kind of call out, I guess, the breakpoints for what matters to us and what doesn't so much. So, Ed, do you mind doing a kind of overview real quick? 
Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So one of the things that we call out, uh, certainly in volume one, what we're looking at is what we categorized as a high risk vulnerability is, is essentially a vulnerability that either has some sort of weaponized code, whether that be POC and something that sits in like an exploit DB or something that's a little bit more point click and shoot like Metasploit or some of the other uh, black hat kits and different things that we were tracking or that we're seeing the exploit uh, in some way used in the wild. Um, and sometimes those intersected. In fact, oftentimes, as, as we'll find out, they did meaning we saw both of those ca uh, cases, uh, but sometimes they did not. Um, so we wanted to kind of figure out, right, so for all of these vulnerabilities that sit within the National Vulnerability Database, how many of them are being exploited in the wild? How many of these uh, have some sort of weaponization, some sort of code that's out there that enables them to be exploited? And then try to dig deeper from there, answer some of the questions around uh, the remediation stuff that we got later. But we really kind of categorized it very simply into of these, how many of them are high risk? And then we started to measure the remediation, not only based on, I think we'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, in terms of coverage and efficiency and, and started to introduce some of those uh, definitions around the, the overall remediation uh, capacity, I guess, of, of an organization. Ultimately, I think the breakdown at the time of this report was just over 120,000 vulnerabilities. Of those, 77% had no published uh, exploits or code or anything that we could see from all those various data sources that would say, hey, you know, this is easy to take advantage of. Of that number as well, you kind of filter it down. 21% roughly had an exploit that was publicly released. So it doesn't mean people are using it, but someone figured out a way to easily take advantage of the vuln via an exploit. So you should probably care about those. And I think that's where the cutoff for coverage and efficiency gets in there. And then out of that subset, the things you really want to worry about was either we can see an exploit in the wild or we've seen some kind of activity related to that vulnerability being exploited. And that number, I believe, comes to about 1.8% total between the two um, buckets that they had there. So, yep. That's that's right. Those that's kind of the buckets of where we start in volume. When you'll see as you get progressed down some of the other volumes, those percentages flux a little bit uh, here and there, but they remain fairly consistent overall. We're not seeing like wild jumps between like two percent and ten percent from exploited in the wild. It's more single digit percentages, regardless. And I've seen that in other other data sets too. You know that that have looked at this and tried to study um, that. It's it's fairly in line. Yep. Yep. That's right. Well, it's interesting because I've actually, I've seen a couple other reports reference and get roughly the same split. And I think we've even actually pulled a couple updates to our numbers to look since, you know, it's grown by roughly 18,000 in the last couple years or so. Um, and the numbers seem to stay relatively even as a percent which is uh which is interesting. So I wonder if it's just down to, you know, human effort and ability slash bandwidth to actually build stuff or I'll bet there were some other volumes of P2P that maybe dug into that a little bit later. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. The teaser, we can get into that. Um so I did want to do a little sidebar. You mentioned it, Ed, coverage versus efficiency, because this will come up a couple times throughout this series, I'm sure. But it was kind of a brand new measure that 
Scientia actually worked out with Michael Reutemann. Can we do a little explainer on what's the difference between coverage and efficiency and how are they interrelated to each other? I'll, I'll start, Wade, but would love for you to dive in here. So they're new in the sense and in, in how we describe them and certainly how they relate to vulnerability management. That said, if you know, you know, familiar with machine learning, there's something called precision and recall out there, which is basically what the, the, these things are based on. When you're thinking about it in terms of remediation of high risk vulnerabilities, which is exactly what we're looking at in this report, uh, you can think of coverage as okay, if I've got 100 high-risk vulnerabilities out there, meaning I've got 100 vulnerabilities that have either a weaponized exploit that we know about or being exploited in the wild, how many of those 100 did I remediate uh, given any remediation strategy that we cover within this report? So if I had you know, fixed 70 out of 100, then my coverage in this case is 70%. Kind of the flip or the yin and the yang here is, is the efficiency side, which is to say, if I went out and fixed 100 vulnerabilities, how many of those ended up being high-risk vulnerabilities, ended up with some sort of exploitation event? So again, if I went out and fixed 100 and 50 of them were ended up being high risk, then I would have a 50% efficiency in this case. Wade, anything to add there? Yeah, I think you mentioned the yin and the yang, Ed, and I think that is an important aspect of this because as we began to dig into uh, the performance of organizations along those two measures, it's very clear that it's hard to maximize both of those things. I mean, ideally you'd have 100% coverage and 100% efficiency, meaning you fixed every single high risk vulnerability and you didn't waste your time with any that were not on that uh, on that list. But the fact of the matter is it's never never works out that way, right? So so you've kind of presented with this I don't want to say dilemma. I mean, it's it really is a strategy of if you are risk adverse, for instance, you probably want to maximize coverage and you're okay sacrificing efficiency. You're okay fixing some things that may not necessarily need to just for the sake of being cautious. On the flip side of that, if you're budget constrained or you're risk tolerant, uh, maybe you maximize efficiency and you know work on the worst of the worst of the worst vulnerabilities first in which case you know you're not gonna get coverage, but you also know you're not wasting your time and resources on stuff that doesn't matter, and you kind of work from there. So I, I just find it fascinating when the analysis leads toward managerial strategies like that, and you can actually measure them. I mean, that's the really cool thing here is that you can objectively measure the performance of any vulnerability management program along those two lines and get meaningful results. Yeah, and there's there's two kind of really practical things to to look at here. One, you, you talked about the the differences between coverage and efficiency, and oftentimes what you'll see an organization do is as they're getting started, they'll start leaning towards efficiency, right? Because they want to make sure that everything that they're doing early on is stuff stuff that matters, right? They want to get as much bang for the buck as they can, and as they start to mature and they start to get a little bit more ahead of it then they start to kind of shift that remediation strategy more towards coverage is, is what we often see, right? And, and you get to a lot more of reducing your overall risk. The other thing to really call out that's important here is there's a difference in coverage and efficiency when you're looking at 
individual CVEs versus patches, right? So it's really important to say in the, in the real world, when I go out and I apply this patch, I may be fixing 10 CVEs of which one might be of high risk and nine are not. Now, I believe if I recall, Wade, we did actually account for that by looking at the remediation strategies via patch or fix. In, in volume two, I oh, believe that's we right. started doing that. I that's do not right. think we did that in this volume. So so efficiency is kind of dampened in yep. volume one because of that. Yep, yep. And so that's that's a really important thing to call out, right? Because I, I want to fix that high-risk vulnerability. And the only way I can fix that high-risk vulnerability is by fixing that one and these nine others, which I shouldn't be penalized for in terms of an efficiency metric, right? Because I'm doing the right thing actually both in terms of coverage and efficiency in that case and i'm applying a patch that that it takes no more effort for me to fix these 10 than it does to fix the one. Oh, so you're saying like say microsoft patch tuesday they give you a patch and it's got one what we would consider i guess a high risk or critical vulnerability, but it's got a ton of other ones that no one's ever going to exploit you're going to apply that patch and in this original model you're actually going to get dinged in terms of efficiency because it sees you plug in nine things that don't matter, one thing that does. That's right. By applying that one patch, effectively, you have 10% efficiency, right, in that example. And, and that goes back to the whole data challenge behind all of this because n now, in order to make that correction, you have to have data on all the patches that exist and which CVEs they address and tie that in to everything else that we've we've already talked about. So, <laughs> you know, it gets more and more complex as you as you go along. Not to mention patch supersedence as well when you throw that in there and like, oh. <laughs> well, I think that's kind of interesting that, um, you know, we're talking about these limit limitations that we're actively discovering while you're doing this research um, and you reference volume two, which I'm sure will be one of our next topics, and how uh, you identified, hey, there's a little gap between this kind of theory and the reality of what people do. Let's go try to figure out that piece. One of the great things about these reports is that we, we go out to answer five questions and we answer those five questions and come back with 10 new ones. I'm sure we'll get a little bit deeper into coverage and efficiency realities uh, in some of the later reports as well. So next section, it goes over kind of the timelines of exploitation. Now that we have a rough idea of what's kind of important to deal with, how fast do you need to do it? Wait, do you mind uh, going over a couple of the uh, timeline reveals that we found in the research? Yeah, certainly. Um you know, and this part narrows in on that subset, roughly 22% of CVEs that have exploit code. Because again, we're asking the question of these, how fast is that code released? How fast is it weaponized? If you haven't read the report, I would suggest looking at it. This, this chart is figure three um, on page nine, and it basically looks like, I don't know, to me, it always reminds me of the Empire State Building or something, because it looks like a skyscraper. Basically, when a CVE is published, exploitation ramps up very quickly. And that's important, right? Because it means that you don't have very much time. That is not to say that it's used in the wild. We'll talk about that in a, in a minute. But at least the, the weapon is created um, very quickly. On, on these CVEs. So attackers are actively, I mean, they're doing the same thing we're doing as defenders, right? We, we monitor CVE and the N NVD and those kinds of things so that we can take action. 
they do too, and they know when those things are published and they're, they're quick. Now, all of them aren't attackers. Again, some of these are people trying to do the right thing by because they're pen testers and they're trying to use the latest bug to see if that exists in the environment and things like that. Whole different discussion there. But uh, bottom line, it's published. If it's going to be exploited, usually it's exploited within a week or two. Publish means CVE or the vulnerability is actually published in the database. So essentially the world knows about it. And then you're talking about an exploit being released. So now we know that, hey, someone can go out and take advantage of this easily. Right. So there's a, there's a publishing of the CVE, but there's also really a publishing in some ways or another of an exploit. Maybe that's an open public publishing in some cases, and sometimes it's private, but it's somewhere we have tracked weaponized code for this particular exploit. Wade, you were saying it looked like a, kind of a skyscraper. It reminds me of a some of the buildings in New York or something like that, the skyline, because it's within roughly two weeks before after the CVE published date, I think is when we see that code published. Yeah. And that, that published dates kind of has some gray area and uncertainty around it. So yeah, it's just rule of thumb. If there's going to be published exploit code, it's happens very close to when the CVE is published. Now, exploitation in the wild is different though. Like that, there is a, an upsurge in exploitation in the wild within the first month or so of exploit code being developed. But that there's kind of a plateau. If you look at figure six in the report, it's equally likely that a CVE might be exploited two years out in the wild as it is in the in the more near term. And that kind of steady steady likelihood of exploitation goes about two years out until it starts to drop off by the time if it's been sitting out there for three years and hasn't been exploited in the wild it's not likely to be kind of the world has forgotten about it so to speak but that behavior is very different you know it's kind of unfortunate because it means you really you can't forget about a vulnerability you know if it's been out a couple months and assume that it's not going to be exploited because it's not interesting to the folks out there. So you have to keep your eye on it for a couple of years. And that means intelligence and more data wrangling and that kind of thing. Yeah. If I remember correctly, Wade, that's that year and a half or two years out. It wasn't just, you know, that they were being exploited a year and a half to two years out, but sometimes it was because they were being exploited or we were seeing them being exploited for the first time anyway. Correct. Correct. That's what I mean. Yes. Yeah. That's right. That's what that is measuring. When the first known exploitation is just as likely to be two years out pretty much as six months out. So there's a really long tail from the published date. So it could be immediately to 1.5 years, two years away. Yeah. Two and a half. Yeah. Oh, wow. What do people do about that? How do, how do you... <laughs> Well, like I mentioned, I think I think a lot of it has to do with you've you you've got to keep these things on on your radar. Whether you do this kind of intelligence internally, whether you work with a third party to do it, that becomes very important because you need to know two years down the road that oop that vulnerability switched now from kind of lying dormant to being exploited in the wild, and if you haven't chased that out from within your environment yet because that's been one of the ones you've deprioritized now you've got to move it to the top of the stack and do something about it yep but you know speaking from the real real world perspective of what what people do about it right one of the things that we found in this report too is once that code is weaponized 
the likelihood of seeing that exploitation in the wild jumps dramatically, right? So assume that once you're you're sitting on a vulnerability that has some sort of weaponized exploit uh, associated with it, that will get used eventually in the wild, whether it's in the next 30 days or the next two years, it's eventually going to get used. Um, so you, you've got your clock is ticking and it's time to go remediate. Yeah, and that, that's the whole notion. I don't think we're getting into it on this this uh, segment, but the exploit prediction um, scoring system and the and the models that we did a year or two after this report published was all right. If we don't know that it's been exploited yet, can we, from the characteristics of that vulnerability, predict whether or not it will likely be exploited in the next year? You know, so you get that. You can take action before before things get uh, get out of hand. Yeah, we've gotten to the point now where we've got a couple of different models available to us. One where is a model which is predicting the weaponization of that exploit, the code being developed, and then other models such as EPSS to predict whether or not we will see an exploit in the wild being used against that over the next 12 months, right? So you can really start to get a little bit more proactive and, and start to understand what might be coming down the road. Ah, the prediction of the prioritization to prediction. Got it. There you go. That it makes so much sense now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm sure we will dig into EPSS and some of the models here, but I think this was the first kind of uh, predictive model that we built some research around at the end of this report. So let's keep chugging through it. I, I know the next kind of section for this uh, report was kind of the rules of remediation was the name, but essentially it was going down and looking at the actual theoretical performance of uh remediating vulnerabilities by vendors or CVSS or, um, you know, a couple different factors, uh, referenceless Metasploit, things like that. So let's start with, uh, I guess, the vendor-driven vulnerabilities. Ed? We looked at a bunch of different vendor lists, obviously, Microsoft, Oracle. I mean, basically, we took, I, I forget that Wade refreshed my memory on this, the top X vendors and looked at their reference lists and their mailing lists. So if you subscribe to Microsoft and you get Patch Tuesdays or whatever, what if I went out and fixed every single Patch Tuesday? How would I do both in terms of coverage, which we talked about, and efficiency uh, for each of those? And I think this was actually a really, really unique piece of this research was it seemed like you guys wanted to provide a baseline for people to understand what's good from a coverage and efficiency standpoint. You guys, you did it by chance, right? So you looked at if you were just to randomly select things to go take care of, things to remediate, what would be the uh, efficiency, which in this case, if you were to just roll a dice and plug things, your efficiency would be roughly 23%. So because 22% of 120,000 vulnerabilities at the time um, were some things that had exploits developed, you should probably take care of those. Maps out 23% makes sense. And then the coverage would vary uh, depending on the, the overall data set, right? So I thought that was interesting. Rolling dice. And I believe the quote for vendor-led uh, remediation for top 20, uh, I, I took a specific note here, a pair of dice would trounce a purely vendor-driven decision model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, fortunately, uh, with the exception of the Microsoft One example, I would tell you that in the real world, most people aren't just 
sitting here and saying, okay, Oracle published something. I'm going to go out and fix everything that Oracle just published. Um, Unless Dark Reading decided to write something on it, right? Yeah, but then they're going to write about a specific CVE within that, you know, list, not all of the CVEs that they've published uh, in their quarterly update. But it, it was I actually one of the more entertaining pieces was to look at all of these different remediation strategies and figure out, well, which ones actually performed worse than random. And there was a lot of them did. Yes, there was certainly more than one. <laughs> I think the next one that we looked at was uh, the CVSS based remediation strategy, which actually I believe is common, right? A lot of companies do use CVSS. Probably as a, more than anything else out there, right? The common vulnerability scoring system, which we co- we covered is in earlier on and is part of, is really part of the, the SCAP standards. So the security content automation protocol, which includes CVE, CVSS, CWE, CPE, all of these different things, uh, mostly out of MITRE and, and NIST. But yeah, we looked at all the different remediation strategies, you know, CVS. What if you just fix CVSS 10 and above? For those who don't know, it's a a 10 point scale. Or I fixed everything that's a CVSS 9 and above or 8 and above and 7 above and so forth. And then looked and said, well, what's the coverage and efficiency of each of these? One of the things that was interesting to see for me, and and I'll let Wade talk about the, the actual results, but it was interesting to see to me how skewed the CVSS scoring system was, right? So if seven and above was a big differentiator, uh, both in terms of coverage and efficiency, because there are so many vulnerabilities that are actually scored a CVSS seven. So if you look at the calculator and how you actually get to the different scores, that's a very common score to end up getting to. In fact, there were, if I recall, there was one score that was nearly or is impossible to actually get. <laughs> I don't remember what it was. I want to say it was like a CVSS three or some some oddball score that it would be, you know, one out of the hundred thousand CVEs are scored this right. It's almost impossible to get. Yeah, I uh, I thought it was pretty fascinating that you know CVSS seven and above is is I would say the consensus strategy, if you want to call it a strategy slash recommendation of of what should be fixed. There's a few things that do do reference that. And that's actually the one that performs best in terms of all the different uh, levels of CVSS. And I mean, it kind of makes sense that if you just fix 10 and above, you'd be the most efficient. It's still not great efficiency is basically the same as random chance, oddly enough but pretty terrible on coverage. Whereas if you fixed five and above, uh, you know, you'd have great coverage, 80% coverage. So that makes sense. But yeah, the, the one that was seven was the best and it's the only one, actually there's a couple of them that beat random chance, but uh, that one performed better than random. Uh, so that's that's actually good that uh, people are, are recommending it. Of course, the models that, that we built on this, uh, blew blew that away by a pretty healthy margin so <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. even when you, you talk about like cvss5 was was good at coverage at 80 percent or whatever but it was also more than 80 percent of the vulnerabilities right so at some point correct uh, you're, you're still ultimately not doing better than random if you you fix 80 percent of the vulnerabilities and you get a coverage of 79 percent or something that's not good <laughs> oh so you're saying it performed better than random chance but 
the total volume of things you would need to fix at a CVSS uh, 7 Plus was like, I think at this time it was what, 46% of the entire MITRE list? Or yeah, something I like mean, that? for any sort of organization, that's a Herculean effort, I would say, to fix that. Although I do remember very early on, and this ages me a bit, but when PCI first came, in fact, I think it was even before it was PCI and Visa had their standard and then uh, Amex or, or MasterCard, uh, MasterCard had a separate standard for SDP, but they used to say CVSS 4 and above was required for PCI compliance, which is essentially saying you have to fix all of your vulnerabilities because there was almost 80, nothing. 89% uh, or yeah. something crazy. Yeah. And just so everyone knows, PCI is a standard that uh, what retailers need to adhere uh, to. Anyone like processing credit cards, the payment card industry is what it stands for. And so technically, if they were to be audited, they should be remediating 90% of all the vulnerabilities that exist on all their systems. Yes, I believe they have since changed that standard. Um, in fact, I, to my uh, pleasure, I think in, in some of the more recent ones, they actually use the, the term risk-based approach. So we got that Very going cool. for us. Well, let's go into why, uh, why they would say that and change uh, some of those standards possibly. So uh, the end of this report looks at trying to figure out a model that would predict the best way to prioritize with a combination of factors. I think uh, the net net of the rules of remediation was none of the attributes in and of itself was a good predictor just by itself. Wade, would you mind just doing an overview? So so the idea in this is, as you, as you mentioned, the different quote strategies, vendor, CVSS, et cetera, don't work very well in isolation but they, the, we wondered, you know, could you use these things in combination to do a better job of predicting exploitation? And so we, we trained you know, a machine learning model using those as inputs. And we added some things like we haven't talked about here, reference lists, you know, whether or not the various lists that exist that talk about security things, you know, if they mention a CVE, you know, a lot of times that's, Hey guys, X is being exploited in the wild. Watch out for it. Um, you know, there's lots of lots of things like that. So we pulled that in using words that are in the CVE description. You know, you know, there's the way that we describe things when someone enters it might be a key. And and some of this was just pure hypothesis. Like, okay, well, maybe that'll work. Um, some of it was more led by intuition. The words, for instance, you know, somehow people pick out some subset of CVEs to create proof of concept and exploit in the wild, right? And so presumably a lot of that has to do with, they read that one and say, ooh, that'd be a good one. I'm gonna <laughs> write an exploit for that, Remote right? code execution. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, so things like that can be signals of, hey, this is probably going to be exploited or is at least attractive for, for that purpose. So long and short of it is we, we wrapped all of that in and used it to train a model. And again, all of this was possible because we had the two objective outcome measures of coverage and efficiency. So you can 
just flat out measure and compare all of these different strategies and what does it do under these conditions? You know, what kind of level of coverage, what kind of level of efficiency do you get, et cetera. Um, and, you know, at the end of this report, we plot it all on a map and we eventually came up with three different approaches to this um, everything model. I think we we called it at, uh, at this time, uh, you know, one that is optimized for efficiency, one that is optimized for coverage, and one that is uh, designed to be more balanced. And all of these beat anything else on the on the spectrum um, by a by a healthy margin. And uh, there was some cheering and celebrating, maybe tearing up when when uh, when we saw (laughs) these kind of results. That was Ed cried because he was so happy. Yes, yes, those are definitely tears of joy. No, yeah, no excellent. <laughs> awesome. Well, here, I'll go ahead. I took some notes on um, kind of how the model performs. So um, one compared to a strategy of remediating all CVEs with a CVSS score of seven or more. So we established earlier, seven plus CVSS was probably the best single strategy that we found thus far, the everything model. So the model you guys worked on that um, incorporated all these different attributes and a few extras was twice as efficient. So 61% versus 31% efficiency, half the effort, which is interesting because we've kind of alluded to that in terms of raw number of things you need to do and how big that that effort would be. So half the effort was 19K versus 37K. So right or almost half the effort, 40 six percent something like that one third the false positives so we didn't really talk about this much but that that's another issue right false positives that pop up requiring extra work or stress <laughs> when none is needed it looks like the model found what 7k versus 25k and then a better level of coverage so 62 percent coverage versus 53 and i believe that was the balance model so some extra numbers here as well eight times more efficient than based off of remedying vulnerabilities from the top 20 vendors, which we also referenced earlier, which was particularly bad and should not be used in and of itself. So I just want to get some of those stats out there. Ed, can you explain uh, the tears of joy you cried when uh, when these results popped up? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we've seen a, a lot of different remediation strategies. I would say by far the CVSS one was the most common. It was, it was good to see the, you know, the seven and above, which is also probably the most most common of the CVSS strategies perform better than most of the things, the standard ones that we looked at that were out there. But when the when this uh, model was kind of put into uh, the test and we started to look at it, really what I liked about it, not only did it outperform all of those other remediation strategies by far, but you, you could tune it, right? So we talked earlier about you know, some some organizations are going to lean towards efficiency. Others are going to lean towards coverage for various reasons. You can turn that model up or down so that you are better at coverage or better at efficiency and still and still be a, like if I tune towards coverage, my efficiency would still have been better than any but any of these other remediation strategies that we are monitoring by quite a bit. Nice. And then, Wade, what were your thoughts um, at the outset of this first report? Uh, you, you know, for me. It opened my eyes because I've been counting and measuring things a long time in in security, and and most of it's counting, right? Like you can say, "Ooh, 
this is a trend because this is happening or this is happening at an increasing rate or, or things like that. But you just don't have many things, at least that I've been involved with, where you have such a clear outcome measure and you can compare two different things and demonstrably prove that one is better than the other. And this was so strong in that, that, I mean, it gave me hope that we can not only do this for vulnerability management and which things should we patch, but a much wider range of security processes and tools and, and all of those things as well. You know, and it, and it also set us in, in volume one, when it closes, we have two measures, right? Coverage and efficiency. And I think in volume five, I don't know, we're dealing with six or more. Uh, you know, so, so we kept adding these objective measures, all of which say something slightly different about the performance of remediation program. And that's awesome, you know, because because you just wouldn't think that we would get there. It's, it's fun to be able to decide this is clearly a better strategy and, and people need it. You know, we've been doing too much guesswork and just what makes a successful program? No breaches? I don't know. You know, is it really that? Just maybe you got by by the skin of your teeth. <laughs> you know? uh, maybe it was dumb luck, but uh, this is something you can measure and hang a hat on. So I like it. Very cool. Well, I think this rounds out uh, this podcast for the first series, the volume one. We'll get definitely farther down into it and talk about a couple of the teases that happened on this very podcast. <laughs> but um, just to round things out real quick, uh, on the page, we will link to the prioritization of prediction report. So you can go get it there. I will also link to the Scientia Institute resource library because that thing is just really cool to go nerd out on um, and dig into. Um, and then we look forward to having Ed and Wade, you guys back on uh, a little bit later. So thanks guys. Sounds good. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.